Lord, we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to look at the word, to consider your ways, um, to see how you've been moving throughout the course of time, to be reminded that time is a created thing and that your will is much bigger than we can see in, in any glance or, or uh, any study. Uh, but we get to see it in, in part and in pieces. And so the piece we get to look at tonight is Exodus 28. And my prayer is that we would treasure you, that we would behold you, that we would see your ways and they would point us back to you, that we would see what others are called to and it would point us back to you, that we would see what we are called to and that it would lead us back to you. Um, we're not just gathering facts. We're not interested in just gain, gaining an understanding of Christian history. All of it's for you. All of it's for your glory. Um, the glory and beauty we, we look at tonight in the scripture is about your glory and beauty. So, Lord, I, I humble myself before you. I, I've trusted you in preparation of the study. I pray that um, you would allow me to trust you and depend on you and keep in step with the Spirit and the teaching of this study. And I pray that the conversation that comes about through questions and conversation um, through questions would, would be honoring and glorifying and pleasing to you. Uh, I'm really, really thankful for this church. Um, this body of believers uh, blesses me in a thousand ways every day. And it's all because of your goodness. And as a pastor, uh, I pray publicly and thank you for the way that I get to see your mighty hand at work and your will being carried out and your purposes and your beauty on display in the lives of your children. Um, it is a sweet privilege to be called brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we love you. We surrender this time to you and ask that you would guide it according to your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week... Uh, what do all of these tabernacle details have to do with the gospel? We've been studying the tabernacle for the last couple chapters, which means we've been in at least the last couple weeks. Actually, you go back to Exodus 23, 21, we see these laws, laws, laws. Then we get into the part about a covenant. Then we see contributions for the sanctuary in chapter 25. We see table for bread, golden lampstand, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the curtains, the temple courts, the east-facing entrance. We see all these things, the bronze altar, um, the oil for the lamp, the lamp itself. What do all of these tabernacle details have to do with the gospel? Yes, absolutely. It points to a better way. And how does that work? Yes, absolutely. This, um, the question, what do these tabernacle deals have to do with the gospel? The answer is it is the gospel. It's, it's all goes, it all goes together. And so um, we need to climb into this this week. Uh, I, f I have found in the past that the Wednesday before the spring break is always one of the most difficult in terms of pulling thought and effort from people. And so um, I probably should have prayed for the kids' classes because it'll be even harder in there. Um, but I want us to, to dive in and really, really engage this text and, and be engaged by it. Um, th this is the gospel. This is the story. Our, our story, you've heard it a thousand times, you'll hear it a thousand more. Our story is the story of a people. This is not just what happened long ago in a faraway land that's disconnected from us. We are considered the true Israel, uh, is what Romans 9, Romans 9 says. We're children of the promise, promise, not just children of the flesh. And because of that, all the ways that God has ever dealt with Israel has something to do with us, and it's part of our story. And ultimately, this entire story, which is the story of the people, is much more about God than it is about us. And so we engage this in a humble way, trying to understand what is God, 
how, how does this affect my relationship with him? It's, it's all about him. He's revealing, us to, revealing to us things about his will, his purpose, his design, um, and what our role is in that. So you have God, and then you have these details that he shares with us. And so we don't just immediately jump to, what does this mean to me? We first need to say, well, what is this saying about God? How, how is God drawing us into this relationship with him as he is revealing himself to us? And so um, th- there's all these details that we see here, and they're all representing Christ in, in some way, shape, form, or manner. Um, what did the bronze altar have to do with Jesus? What happened at the bronze altar? Sacrifice. So what does a bronze altar have to do with Jesus? It's foreshadowing Jesus. Why would you bring a sacrifice? Yeah, there's, the, yeah, the blood atonement, the blood sacrifice. Yes, yes, yes. And so at that bronze altar, all that was happening there, the sacrifice of the, uh, of the innocent animal, the blood atonement, is all pointing us to Christ, okay? What about the temple courts? What do those have to do with Jesus? Or the Holy of Holies, or the curtain, or the veil, or the bread, or the table. I'm just, I, let's get some conversation moving here. What do all these things have to do with Jesus? What are some things that y'all, y'all can recall before we shift gears a little bit in tonight's study? Yes. And what happened on the cross? Yeah, the veil was actually torn from top to bottom. And so the separation was removed, and now we are called a royal what? Priesthood. Um, what about the, uh, the pattern that's mentioned? There's this pattern. God keeps saying to Moses, and follow the pattern that I have set for you, exactly to the pattern that I have revealed to you. What does that have to do with, um, what, is that, what is God revealing about himself in that, and what, how does that affect the way that we live for God? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't a north entrance and a south entrance and an east entrance and a west entrance. It was the east-facing entrance, and it, and it hearkens us back to the garden, and we see restoration happening here. Um, we know that there's a pattern set. Paul said to Timothy, follow the pattern of, uh, that I've shared with you about the, the way to live as, as a believer. And so um, all these things point to Jesus. This week, the text actually shifts a little bit, and the shift is from the focus on the tabernacle and its furnishings to the priests and their garments. So we're shifting from tabernacle and furnishings to priests in their garments and what they do, and then we'll come back to some of the furnishings. And the point in all this is not that God is random and wants to confuse us, but that all of this is one thing. All of this is a unit. This is all um, woven together, if you will, uh, to, to show us this big picture of what God wants for his people. And so uh, we're going to talk about the priests in the garments. Generally speaking, we could spend weeks in chapter 28, to plumb the depths of the symbolism and the foreshadowing of the types presented in these verses. However, for the sake of continuity and teaching, we may just save that for preaching or something at a later date. One commentator starts off with a question that I just really appreciated because I'm looking at this, and it's interesting because the subtitles weren't there when the text was originally written. So I think it's funny that the subtitles are the priest's garments because it should be like the priests and their garments or something like that um, because... It, it, it's more than just their garments because it's all is typified and foreshadowing things. But one commentator bluntly states, why should 21st century Christians examine the wardrobe of an ancient Hebrew priest? It's a fantastic question. Why should we sitting here, 21st century Christians, examine the wardrobe of an ancient Hebrew priest? Who cares? Why does it matter? He goes on to say, uh, because Aaron... Moses' brother, who we're going to be talking about tonight, we're going to be looking at how he is um, clothed, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, a type of our great high priest. Um, What's the difference between the type and the actual thing? Yeah, the type points to the actual thing. That's a great, easy way to say it. 
Um, Types are persons or objects or events that serve as prophetic illustrations or likenesses of New Testament fulfillments. Or to say it more simply, the type points to the real thing. It's not the real thing itself, but it points to the real thing. So I'm not saying Aaron is just like Jesus. No, no, no. It's a type. It points to the real thing. Um, Only shadows, uh, not the real thing. So with that, let us consider the first five verses of Exodus 28. Then bring near uh, to you. Now, who's talking here? God, and he's speaking to who? And Moses is where? On the mountain. Okay. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Now, we have to do away with a lot of our uh, uh, preconceived ideas about what is regal and royal and holy and even fashionable as we look at this text. Because as I try to show um, what God is communicating about his holiness via these articles of clothing particularly, we have a lot of ideas about what these things are. When I say turban, the first thing that may jump into your head may not be what the biblical meaning is. When I say robe, you may think of bathrobe, and you don't think of royalty and respect when you wear your robe. You think of that's what you don't leave when you wear the house, when you leave the house, when you wear the house. That'd be a bigger problem. Um, when you leave the house, when I, when I talk about um, this coat, a, a sash, guys, when I talk about wearing a sash, y'all probably don't think, yeah, I've got three. Um, so there's a lot of um, things in here that we could just look at the clothing. Again, I have a CD with images on it on my desk. My goodness gracious. And, um, and they have a picture of this so that we can uh, look at it in our mind's eye, which is what we'll do tonight. Man, I'm going to... So, um, this... Uh, that's so funny. Um, there, there's a, there's a, an outfit and a hat and a thing. Um, I'm losing my mind, y'all. Forgive me. So, I'm wanting us to try to do away with some of our preconceived ideas here and really look at this. We're talking about regal, respectful, honorable, um, holy dress and garb that means something outwardly to God's people because it means something to God. That's really foreign to us. We, most of us don't even dress up to go to church anymore. I mean, I, I'm teaching him in blue jeans. That, that's crazy, but it's, it's very cultural for us. And so um, uh, we look at these first five verses, and I want to ask you the, qu- the question, what do you think are the important details that we should consider in these five verses? Look at those five verses, read through them quietly, and, and think, what, what are the things that jump out that we should not, not miss, not lose sight of? Some details. Yeah, for glory and for beauty, holy garments, yes. Yeah, they consecrate him for what? The priesthood, yeah, that's huge. And they're holy. And so there's something in these garments that they're not just symbolic of something else that's important. They themselves are important. Um, Note, um, this is... I've already said this is a hard scripture to teach through and to walk through. Another reason for that is for all the detail. We're about to engage a whole lot more detail this week, the same way we did last week, the same way we did the week before, the same way we're going to do not next week because it's spring break, but the week after that. 
And I want to encourage you that at every moment, as we're reading through this, remember one of the commentators said that this is the least read and least understood um, section of Scripture because it comes right after the Ten Commandments and people just sort of say, okay, well, that was really important, so the rest we don't count as important. And I want to encourage you that at every moment that you think about how tedious and seemingly never-ending this is, consider the holiness of God. As we read through these details, consider the holiness of God. Consider that if we were to perfectly do all that he has ever asked without ever wavering, we would still fall infinitely short of his holiness. So think about the holiness of God. Consider how God's ways are higher than our ways and that no one gives God counsel. Sometimes when we read things and it is tedious or it seems longer in length than we think it needs to be, or there's details that are hard for us to focus on, we can sort of in our mind begin to give it counsel, but fail to realize, are you trying to give counsel to God? I I do that in the preparation of this. Like I looked at this and I thought, okay, Um, garments, a whole night on garments from ancient priests. Maybe I'll do chapter 28 and 29 together. I'll just kind of roll them together and make it pretty and you know, shorten it up a little bit. And, and that's not right. I don't give the Lord counsel. You don't give the Lord counsel. We submit to his counsel. We need his counsel. So as we look at the details, be ever mindful of the holiness of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, that, that's huge. The, 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 the faulty application of that would be to try to reproduce this in some way. So you could end up with churches full of people dressed really nicely that aren't mindful of being clothed in righteousness of Christ. And so it's funny because as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, we need more of this. We need, we need, I, maybe we should start wearing robes when we preach or something or hats or something cool. And, and, and just as soon as you step off into that, you're thinking, I'm trying to reproduce something that was, that's a shadow of the true thing. And the true thing is Christ. And so to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ is how we are considered acceptable to God. And so to go back and try to like recreate this in some way or, or accomplish it through temporal material means uh, falls completely short of what's actually being communicated here once being foreshadowed in Christ, how we are clothed in his righteousness, which we'll get to later on. Um, this, uh, the materials used in the priest's garments, it said uh, gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twine linen. Um, those are the same as what? The materials used where? In the tabernacle, exactly. The materials used in the tabernacle. They're for glory and beauty because, as uh, Corey said, they're to reflect the glory and beauty of God. And so um, it's never only about the glory and beauty of the tabernacle. Like, you read about the glory and beauty of the tabernacle, it was never only about the glory and beauty of the tabernacle. You read about the glory and beauty of the priestly garments, it was never only about the priestly garments. All of it points to the glory and the beauty of a very real, present, merciful, compassionate, just, righteous God. So they all help us to see that in God in some manner. Now look at verses 6 through 14. And they shall make the ephod of gold of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and a fine twine linen skillfully worked. Now, 
I'm not talking about the skillful workers who are blessed with skill yet because I'm going to really um, get to that in Exodus 31 when we talk about Bezalel and Aholiab, but there's pretty remarkable stuff there in the way that God gifts people for certain things. But uh, verse 7 says, It shall have two shoulder pieces attached uh, to its edges, to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band linen shall be made like it and be of one piece with it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. So you'd have an onyx stone on this shoulder, an onyx stone on this shoulder, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth. So birth order is significant here. Um, as a jeweler engraves signets, I think that's how you say that word, so shall uh, you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance, stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance." You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. Now, at this point, none of this has happened yet. Nothing's been built on the tabernacle. Nothing's been sewed. No metal work has been done. Moses is still hearing all these details from God. God is very particular in these details. And so he's saying, this is what the priestly garments will be. But it hasn't happened yet. So we're reading these details about things to come. Turn to Hebrews 7 briefly. We're going to go back and forth to Hebrews and Romans and a couple other books to, to understand how this all goes together. Hebrews 7.25 says this. Now, we just read about this ephod of gold and these onyx stones with six tribes of Israel here and six here on the shoulders of the priest so that he can... He can uh, bring them to remembrance as he bears them before the Lord. And in, in Hebrews 7.25, it says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What do you think these two sets of verses have to do with each other? You have a high priest wearing this gold ephod with the onyx stones and the names of the tribes of Israel, and he's going before the Lord, bringing to remembrance their names and bearing them before God. And then you have Jesus, who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What do these have to do with each other? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus is the ultimate high priest, the great high priest. And so, um, this, uh, Jesus is a servant forever also. Uh, he has gone into heaven to appear in the presence of God for us, and there he lives to make intercession for us. I want you all to consider that for a moment. What that's saying in Hebrews is, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Um, consider how remarkable it is that Christ, our high priest, perpetually remembers us in heaven. That's no small thing. For church people, we can get used to that. Don't get used to that. Be blown away by that. Christ, our great high priest, always remembers us in heaven. And it goes on. Turn over to Romans 8. It's back to the left a bit. Romans 8, uh, verses 33 through 34 say this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Turn to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.18 says this. And we're going to be looking at this this week, actually, or in the next couple weeks. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he is interceding for us. He's helping those who are being tempted. And then look at 4, 14 through 16 in Hebrews. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Christ prays for us when we are tempted and sympathizes with us when we suffer. Christ prays for us when we're tempted. He sympathizes for us when we suffer. He is interceding for us in heaven all the time. It says that when he comes back and he finds those who are ready, he will set a table and serve them in heaven. Christ is a servant forever because he serves out of love, not just out of need. How do you think this should affect us? A God who intercedes for us, a God who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, a God who prays for us and helps us when we're tempted. How do you think this should affect us? Yeah. Yes. Humility. Um, we're called to do the same for those who are in Christ. How else should it affect us? Sympathizing, compassionate, interceding God. Yeah. Hugely encouraging. Because we have a tendency to get overwhelmed in overwhelming circumstances. Circumstances where we are tempted. Circumstances where we need that prayer. Circumstances where we are going through trouble, uh, troubling times that um, we don't get through them by acting like they're not troubling. So it's really good to know that our God is near and he causes us to remember his name and he helps us in our weaknesses. He personally and constantly remembers each of his elect by name. As children of God, we should be very encouraged by that and we should never grow cold to that. That should never be, oh, that's great, that's fine. That should really encourage you, no matter where you are this evening, that God intercedes, he is compassionate, he understands, and he prays for us, and he is a servant forever, and he calls us to a life that, um, that reflects his glory. Turn, turn over to Exodus 28, turn back. Why do you think that these two stones were on the shoulder? On the shoulder particularly. We'll, we'll get to what the stones are. But why do you think they're on the shoulder particularly? What, what is the shoulder a sign of? What could it represent possibly? Strength, yeah. It would be different if they were on the pinky. They're on the shoulder. So we're, we're talking about strength here. Uh, a sign of strength. The psalmist actually refers to God as my strength. The psalmist cries out and says, Oh, my strength, oh, my Lord. This goes beyond saying that God is simply a source of our strength. That, that's flawed thinking for us to say God is a source of our strength. Um, he alone is strong enough to meet our every need. We don't have every need met by God giving us some strength. It's his strength. We don't have every need met by we take our strength and we combine it with God's strength and then we can do anything. It's his strength alone that is enough to meet our every need. Look at verses 15 through 30 in Exodus 28. This will be a little longer, so y'all hang in there. Remember, holiness of God. You shall make a breast piece of judgment. Now, what is it of? A breast piece of what? Judgment. Don't miss that. In skilled work, in the style of the ephod, you shall make it. Of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen shall you make it. It shall be square and double to span its length and to span its breadth. A span is about like this. They say it's like nine to ten and a half inches. And so you'd have a perfect square right here. And it would be a piece of cloth, the fine twine linen particularly, that would be doubled on, on the length up and down. And so it would be folded up to give it some strength because you're going to hang some precious stones from it and it needs to be doubled up. So it's this perfect square that sits right here. So you get your onyx stones here with the 12 tribes of Israel. Then you got this square here of this, um, this breastplate of breastpiece of judgment. Of gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twine, you shall make it. It shall be a square and double to span its length and span its breadth. Uh, you shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row of emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. We don't know what 
all of these stones are. We know what some of them are, but um, some of them are, are sort of unidentified from our perspective. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, uh, jacinth, an agate, I think, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. So the names of the sons of Israel are on the 12 stones. They shall be like signets, each engraved uh, with its name for the 12 tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. So you're going to take gold and you're going to twist it together as though a chain. And, and that's, um, you shall make for the breastpiece the two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree and so attach it in the front of the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of an ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the Lord of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Urim and Thummim are believed to be um, these two stones that somehow would help the priest to understand the will of God. Some have likened it to casting lots. Uh, it's a, I don't know if it's a good example, but it would be like rolling dice and trusting the Lord's will to reveal his will through the rolling of dice. That seems really flippant to us, and it seems like gambling, and it seems foolish. But there's sort of a similarity there in that these stones could somehow, we do not know how, be used to um, help us understand what the will of God is. That was uh, left to the priest, and I don't know if there's much more than we could say about that. A lot of the commentators, I, th I think, take it a little far in uh, some of their expressions, so I I'll leave it at that. Um, uh, one guy named Bentley states, When the high priest went into the presence of God, he carried with him the names of all the Israelites in two places. Where were the two places? Yeah. He bore their names on his shoulders. This indicated the responsibilities of the high priest to care for them. And he carried them on his heart. And this was to show the love which he had for them. So he wasn't just getting men to go through tasks here. The priests were to embrace the call to be strong for the people, to care for them, and also to have affection toward them, to keep them close to, their, to his heart. See God exercising both strength and affection for his people. Like you, as you sit there, see God exercising both strength and affection for his people. This is important. Some people wrongly find it necessary to limit God to only one of these two characteristics. If we think that he only saves us because of our depravity, then we can lose sight of his affections toward us, which will inevitably result in a lack of affection to other people on our behalf. All I'm saying is that if we don't see God having any affection toward us, that is the way that oftentimes Christian people horribly, sorely lack affection towards other people. It's, it's the kind of thing that lets you go up to someone with zero compassion and tell them they're going to hell and it's their choice if they accept Jesus or not. And that's that. I wash my hands of you. That's lacking in compassion. But that's where we step off too far into that ditch if we don't see the compassion of our Lord. However, if we only see the affection of God towards his people and we lose sight of our depravity and we lose sight of our need of the strength of another, you have need of the strength of the high priest. You need your name bore on his shoulder so that he can help you. If we lose sight of that, we'll present to people a picture of God who just wants to be their friend and not necessarily their savior. He, he just loves you. 
He just loves you. He just loves you. And he just loves you. Won't you take him? Won't you accept him? Won't you give your life to him? It'll be so much better. And you lose sight of the real need for someone to intercede for you with strength that is far beyond you because you are depraved. And so see both those things here in the names of Israel being carried on the shoulders and being carried by the, uh, close to the heart is that he is, he is achieving things for us that we can never achieve on our own, exercising strength for us that we don't have for ourselves. And he's keeping us close to his heart because he has affection for us. He's a compassionate God who cares for his children. And he calls us in Corinthians to spend and be spent gladly on the souls of his children because he himself spends and is spent gladly on the souls of his children. Turn to Malachi 3. It's a cool little example of that. Malachi 3, 16 through 18. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, so you can go to Matthew and take a quick left. Malachi 3, uh, 16 says this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And listen to this. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now, I have three questions for you here. How does God refer to his children as his what? Treasured possession. Hear that. God doesn't refer to you as a bunch of dirt bags who he saves out of spite. Treasured possession. Now, what is God doing for them here? What does it say he does? He remembers them, and what else? He spares them. A treasured possession who is being spared, and for what purpose? That they would what? Yeah, that they would serve him in righteousness and show the difference between righteous living and wicked living, between righteousness itself and wickedness itself. So he refers to them as a treasured possession because he's called them out and he's made them his own. It's not just a bunch of losers who he... He um, sort of reluctantly saves a treasured possession spared that they would serve him in righteousness and show the difference between righteousness and wickedness. Turn back to Exodus 28, verse 31. We're at the part about the robe. It's not a bathrobe. You should make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. Don't cheap out on the robe. It needs not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. Now, guys, at this point, you're having a hard time. I get it. A blue robe with little pomegranates and bells hanging from it. Um, That's probably not the most manly, regal, thing you could think of, but this is God speaking, and our, our thoughts are not bigger. Like, you don't look at this and be like, that is, that is ridiculous. There's, there's something being communicated here. Pomegranates. Yes, pomegranates and little bells. A golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and it shall, its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out so that he does not die. Okay. A.W. Pink uh, makes a note that never before, never before this time is the word robe mentioned in Scripture. He goes on to say that it is a garment of dignity, one of office, and one which gave priestly character to Aaron. They're clothed in these things, and they're given a sort of character that is priestly that they would otherwise not have if not clothed in the manner that God called them to be clothed. So, I also want you to note that these garments weren't worn all the time. These were only worn while carrying out the priestly duties. 
There's other pieces of scripture that we'll come across at some point in going through the Old Testament where you actually see that priests have particular fields that are set aside for them so that they can raise livestock and do work with their hands and, and earn. And so they wouldn't go out there in their pomegranates and bells and turbans and things and do that. There was other things that they wore. But um, uh, these garments were only worn while carrying out the priestly duties. So I want you to consider the sounds heard as Aaron walked about within the temple courts and the tabernacle. Those little bells would have been a sweet sound. Why? He's alive. What does that mean for you? It, it, exactly. If the priest is dead, yes, yeah, it would be like you're on the phone with someone who's disarming the bomb. And then, and then they're not there. It's like, uh-oh. Uh, I guess our hope is done. I mean, if you don't hear those bells, it's a problem. And so um, those little bells would have been a sweet sound. Why? It means that you're being cared for. It means that strength and affection toward you are being exercised. You are being accepted as your sins are brought before God in the sacrifice, and you are forgiven, and you are cleansed. All of those things would be going through the mind of the worshiper as they heard those little bells on the hem of the garment of the priest. Henry Law, an evangelical Anglican from the 1800s, puts forward the idea that, and I'll share this with you, I don't necessarily disagree with it, but I don't take it as like, oh, that's awesome. But he says, because the pomegranate is a fruit Rich in seed, it represents the success of Christ's death. His seed, those for whom he died, will be numerous as the stars in heaven, sand on the shore. So he says that the pomegranate, because it has so many seeds in it, is indicative of the seed of Christ and expressive of that which he accomplishes in his death. It's poetic. It's cool. I'll, I'll go with it. Some other guys said something about how the seeds float in something. It was a real stretch. This was as close as I get on the pomegranates. I feel the need to redeem the pomegranates, and I don't know why. It's probably my own sin. Like, I should say, it's okay that he had pomegranates hanging from his robe. Um, yeah. I like that, too. I'll take that with Henry Law. We'll put them together. We have a good thought in regards to pomegranates. I'm for it. And to make sure we see this full effect, turn over to Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Why should we care about being robed and clothed in righteousness? Yeah, it's the only thing that saves us. Without it, we are unacceptable to God. Yes. Without the priestly garments of the Old Testament, we don't even have a parking spot for that thought. When I say clothed in righteousness, without the priestly garments of the Old Testament, it's like, ooh, that's poetic and cool, but I have no idea what that means. If you're not clothed in righteousness, you do not go before the holy God. You do it exactly as he says. So, that gives us understanding in that so that we don't just have to be loosely, sloppily poetic. Uh, look at Exodus 28, verses 36 through 38. I'm going to read the rest of this, and then we'll, um, I'll read the rest of the chapter here. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of the signet, holy to the Lord. So what does it say on the gold plate on the turban? Holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Now, um, what do you think it means to bear the guilt of the people? Yeah, that's what you're bringing with you, Aaron. Curid explains um, the high priest as the representative Israel of Israel will incur responsibility for the sins of Israel and then make sacrificial atonement for them. Consider for a moment 
how this would be approached by the high priest. What sort of things do you think were on his mind and his heart as he would bear the guilt of Israel before God? Yeah. It's not like, hey, God, I'm back. I got all my stuff on. No, no, no. He would have been meticulous, careful, detailed, not flippant, not sloppy. So what does this have to do with Jesus? Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Take that in for a minute. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I feel like we should all probably memorize that. How do we respond to such an act of unmatched love and provision? What do I do with that? Yes, yeah. Take your cue from the priest. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says that we should be holy and blameless before him. Um, ever states that this should cause us to frequently ask ourselves, and I would ask you to ask yourself, are my thoughts, my attitudes, my desires, my words, and my actions holy to the Lord? Are all those things holy to the Lord? Or in my Christian living, am I flippant and sloppy and haphazard and loose in the way that I live? This is calling us to holiness. Why? Because he is holy. In Exodus 28, verses 39 through the rest of the chapter, it says, You shall weave the coat and checkerwork of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. They do not serve God as priests until those things are done. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. This is the part about holy underwear. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons, and they go into the tent of meeting. And when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. The part about holy underwear, the purpose of this was to present yourself to the Lord in a pure, holy, unblemished, covered way. Make every effort and every precaution as you enter into the presence of Lord, lest you bear guilt and die. Remember that the reason for covering nakedness goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, upon sinning, Adam and Eve were immediately aware that they were naked. So, as an acknowledgement of our guilt and obedience to God who clothed us with the animal skins of a pure sacrifice, we wear clothes. So, people who are nudists or think that um, they can sort of undo that and return to some state of original goodness just by going about naked, it never works out. If someone was to walk into this room unclothed, no one would say, oh, that's so beautiful. They're just returning to Eden. Everyone would say, that's inappropriate because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and God uh, covered uh, people with something and you need to get covered with something. That's, that would be our response. So um, it goes back to the garden. I want to close with First uh, Peter. Yeah, we've got a minute. Turn to First Peter. First Peter 2. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 5 and verse 9. This is where we can take these things from the Old Testament, see how they work now for those who are in Christ. 2 verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Look what you're doing now. All the things the priest did. You see that? Living stones, spiritual house, think tabernacle, think temple, to be a holy priesthood like Aaron and his sons to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's what the priests did. That's who we are in Christ now. And look down at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The priesthood is no longer restricted to an elite group within the church. It certainly informs those in leadership. For elders, pastors, deacons, small group shepherds, this should inform your leadership undoubtedly. But know that if you're an elder, pastor, deacon, small group shepherd, you're not an elite group within the church. We don't have those. The priesthood is no longer restricted to an elite group within the church. Ever says, now all believers, male and female, are priests who bring to the great high priest the offering of their lives, their praise, and their service. Romans 12 calls it offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this can never be accomplished on your own efforts. It is only those who are in Christ, our great high priest, and our great unblemished sacrifice, who have hope to be counted righteous in the eyes of God. Let's pray. Lord, clearly we are called the lives of holiness because of all that you have accomplished. Clearly we see that what you expected of the priesthood in Exodus 28 was used to help us understand how things are fulfilled in Christ and how in Christ we are people being built up, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a holy dwelling, a temper, a temple, a tabernacle, um, people who bring sacrifices. Lord, thank you for giving us such access to yourself. Thank you that I can pray right now and not be struck down dead. It is only in Christ that we humbly offer any prayer, any sacrifice, because we know that our righteousness is only counted to us because it is Christ's righteousness being counted to us. Apart from Christ, we have no righteousness. You are great and greatly to be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.